This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Crisis at Bayern? Question mark. They lose in Rome to Lazio without a shot on target. How much pressure is Thomas Tuchel under as he watches Harry Kane and friends lumber around, creating not a whole lot? Lazio didn't create that much either, but still a significant win for Maurizio Sarri. In Paris, PSG are garbage for the best part of an hour before Mbappe's goal sent a surge of confidence through the team. A 2-0 win. Real Sociedad looks sharp, but you can see why they haven't scored a goal for five games. We'll look ahead to a Premier League weekend, including Man City hosting Chelsea and Nice looking fixtures for the rest of the top five. Ewan Murray's Jazz Bar keeps very sporadic opening hours, but it's here today as we have a proper title race fit bar corner. All that plus justice for Philogene, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nikki Bandini, welcome. Morning. Uh, hello, Barry Glendening. Hello, Max Rushton. And bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Ça va très bien, Max Rushton. Yes. Guy says, does Harry Kane need to move to win things? Uh, Ladder says, if Harry Kane signed for Celtic, who would win the league? Hearts, Hibs or Motherwell? Our Irish driving instructor says, did Bayern Munich need to just add a few more Spurs players before things really begin to tick? Uh, Yeah, at the Stadio Olimpico, Lazio beat Bayern 1-0. Huge win for them. Um, Obviously a huge turning point with the red card and the penalty, Nicky, but... I mean, pre-game, certainly when the draw was made, this was not predicted, was it? No, and I and I feel like I need to sort of deliver the Italian perspective on this. No one in Italy expected this. No one um, in Rome expected this. This was very much, and and of course, keeping in the frame here that this is the first leg and they could easily get walloped to one in the second leg. Um, but I, I think expectations were, were really, really low for Lazio, easily the lowest out of any of the Italian teams that are through to the knockout stage of the Champions League. And... Um, and and I think this result, well, they hadn't won a Champions League knockout game in Lazio for 24 years. So it's a result that's going to be remembered for a, a really, really long time, uh, even if things do go south in the, in the return leg. I thought it was a demonstration of perhaps all of their limitations, but also a team managing to do what it could despite those limitations. This team is eighth in Serie A. This is not a team that last season they were second. Last season, the defence was tighter. And I think last season, critically, I would say they had a higher sort of technical ceiling because they had Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, who was the one player in that team, perhaps other than Immobile, who you looked at and thought, okay, there's a really technically capable player who can who can do things. Chiro Immobile, who's been injury part of the season was out of form horribly at the start of this season got dropped from the starting 11 someone who's been untouchable for such a long time wasn't even starting games early this season um and to some extent with him there's this thing going on where he was very very close for a long time to hitting his 200th Serie A goal he got that uh two games ago and it feels like that sort of classic striker cliche about the ketchup bottle that was stuck and now he scored in three games in a row but but this is, it's a limited team. And I, I think Maurizio Sarri deserves a lot of credit for shutting down um, Bayern as effectively as they did. The goal, yes, it's a penalty. It's a mistake by Uf Meccano. But they gave themselves a chance to hang in this game long enough to, to get that opportunity. Mm. And it's interesting, actually, Barry, isn't it? It's a, a limited team who also made Bayern look limited. I was thinking... And Crystal Palace play Everton again, and you were so delighted about watching another one of them. And it, it almost felt a bit like that sort of game. I was like, neither of these two sides are are elite. And maybe that's doing them both a disservice. I don't know, but it was all just felt quite ploddy. Yeah, I think that's actually a good description. 
neither of them really got going. And I think if you just happened to be watching the game and didn't know who was playing, you wouldn't think they were two elite teams. You know, they, they just everything was very ponderous and slow. And you ask in the intro, are, are Bayern Munich in crisis? And I think by Bayern Munich standards, they, they certainly are. I mean, Ivan Provedal in the Lazio goal didn't have to make a save. Harry Kane only had one shot of no early in the game, which he ballooned over the bar. He scored six in his past 12, compared to 22 in his first 16 games as a Bayern player. So that's worrying a worrying drop-off. Uh, Bayern have failed to score in consecutive games for the first time in nine years. Tuchel has lost one in four as their manager, or just a little under one in four. Knocked out of the cup by a third division team. And there seems to be a prevailing view that ah, they'll be okay, they'll turn it around the second leg. And I'm not so sure. I think the fact that it's not for three weeks is a big advantage for them. I think if it was played next week, they'd be in big trouble. And the last seven times I read this morning, they've they've lost the first leg of a Champions League tie. They've gone out. So I don't think there's anything near a foregone conclusion that they will uh, win the the second leg or win by a sufficient margin to turn this around and go to the quarterfinals. Picking up off what Baz said um, about it being a very slow game. And I was actually, I think you were saying this, Max, even on a podcast just the other day about um, how playing without the ball is more tiring than playing with the ball. And Lazio knew they weren't going to have the ball in this game and they didn't have the ball in this game, obviously Bayern dominated the ball. And I, I think that then the slowness of the game I think Lazio play quite a slow football anyway, so I don't want to oversell this point. But I think it, it, to some extent, is deliberate on their part. Is if you know you're going to be without the ball, you know you're going to be more tired. You can't go at 100 miles an hour because then you're going to burn out, and eventually later in the game, you're going to give those opportunities to Misiala, to Sane, to those players. So keeping the games as slow as you can, for as long as you can, gives you a chance to get to the end of it still in fighting shape. Mm. How good is too cool? Philippe. I mean, JC says he's is he an elite good. coach. Uh, yes, he apart is from Champions coach. League with Chelsea, league form with, was unspectacular. Di Matteo won it with Chelsea in similar circumstances. He got PSG to a Champions League final, but it was the height of COVID, one-legged ties, no crowds. He's lost 10 of his 43 games as a, in competitive matches as, as Bayern coach. Same as Nagelsmann after 84 games. So that sort of makes him twice as bad as, as Nagelsmann. But, but, <laughs> yeah, but, but right. you know, but how good is this guy? He's, he's very good, and um, I, I think that comparing him to uh, for what he did with, what he did at Chelsea with Roberto Di Matteo is perhaps a little bit wide of the mark, and okay. um, and with PSG certainly of all the managers who've uh, who've been a, a, at PSG over the past well since Carlo Ancelotti perhaps is probably been the one who actually made them play the best football crowds or no crowds. Um, so no, he's a very good. Very good manager, but I was just looking, you know, at, at this lineup of Bayerns yesterday, and I cannot. It's very difficult for me to think of a team in which absolutely every single player, apart from Manuel Neuer, who had this fantastic save when when he was one on one v Isaac Sen, it was like, you know, absolutely magnificent example of what to do when you're on a one v one. But all the others, I'm thinking, Kimmich. I, I seem to remember that Kimmich was supposed to be the next best midfielder in the world, right? He was supposed to be the new Philippe Lam, the guy who could do everything. Mm. Musiala is supposed to be a ballon d'or in waiting. Kane is supposed to be Harry Kane. And you carry on. Kim, I absolutely loved him until last night and thought, 
Well, no, that's not the same play I'm talking about. Goretzka is supposed to be a force of nature um, and also somebody with um, one of the most devilish shots on the planet. And you go through Leroy Sané. I mean, it can be very frustrating, but still a very talented player. And it's not just that the team was less than the sum of its parts. It's that the players were less than the sum of themselves, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and, no, it does. And, and, yeah. and Tuchel must be responsible for that. But I'm wondering if it hasn't got more to do with the club itself uh, than, than with the manager. If, if Bayern is not starting to PSG itself, if you see what I mean. It's like it's become a kind of place that, where you go to if you want to have a problem. So whoever they're going to, to take in, be it as a striker, you know, Harry Kane, Harry can't, and, uh, or you, a manager, or maybe even a physio, and everything they're going to touch is going to turn to dust. It, it starts to feel that way. And I suppose, I mean, I'm saying that also because they were completely walloped by, by, by Oliver Kusen at the weekend. It was shocking. It was really shocking. So to answer your question, yes, he's a very good coach, but the club has got a very serious problem by which very good players and very good coaches seem to lose their capacities, their abilities and their talent. There was an interesting thread by Jack Pitbrook from Athletic, Barry, about Harry Kane saying, look, his last big moment in Champions League knockouts was five years ago when Spurs beat Dortmund. For England, the picture is slightly different. He has lots of tournament goals, Tunisia, Colombia, the winner against Denmark, you know, when he missed the penalty was saved and he scored the follow-up, the first penalty against France, but obviously not the second one. Not much against Croatia or Italy. Um, and maybe it's incredibly harsh given everything he's achieved, but it feels his legacy needs something, a big goal, a big moment in a decisive semi-final or a final, certainly in club football. And it's sort of something that you've alluded to in the past about this guy that scores thousands of goals. And maybe, and producer Joel was saying before the pod, maybe there just aren't that many moments in football matches. You know, there aren't that many big goals to score. But, but you know, Harry Kane, he might end up with no trophy this year and then eventually you sort of go, Wow, this is sort of extraordinary for someone who is clearly so good. Yeah, I think the last time I alluded to the fact that he might not be what we call, or what Americans call a clutch player, was when England played Italy in a, what would that have been, a Euro qualifier? Euro final? Euro final. Yeah, Euro for No, I don't think it was a final, actually. But I got ferocious abuse for it on uh, social media. Absolutely torn apart. Uh, and was accused of being a bitter Irishman who should go home, which is something you've told me on numerous occasions as well, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) I I think he's a terrific player, and he seems like an absolute lovely bloke, and, you know, he's doing really well in the Bundesliga. He's got, uh, what's he got, 28 goals so far in 36 games. That's really, really good. But he went missing against Bayer Leverkusen and he went missing last night. And he has gone missing in a few key England games. So, you know, that, you can't get away from that. Hmm. I mean, I suppose it's possible that he might not be a clutch footballer and you could also be a bitter Irishman that should go out of the team. That's fair comment. Mutually exclusive. No, I was just going to say he, he went missing, but perhaps because nobody there was no search party. I mean, it, it. Who was actually trying to supply him with the kind of service that that he normally thrives on? Well, Thomas Thomas Muller supplied him with a lovely opportunity last night, and he ballooned it all. Okay, the that bar. was one. Was that a lovely opportunity? I, I felt like the defenders. Yeah, right well, on sometimes him. you only get one, Philippe. 
you got to put mm, it away. Yes. Okay. So he's not. A, he's a. What is it that they say? Is a like they say in cricket. He's a. Uh, he's a player of great innings, but not a great player or whatever it is. Yes, I, I can't remember. No, he, he's undeniably mm. a great player, but he does go missing in big games. But the big games that there have been, and the, the teams that he has played for, um, the big... I mean, you mean he's not like a Zidane, you know, who scores the first two headers of his life in a, in a World Cup final or... You know, or a volley from with yeah. his wrong foot from in the European Cup final. Um, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, I don't think that he's been in teams. I mean, which really would enable him to do that. Certainly not with Tottenham, England. But this is supposed to be that team, isn't it? I this know. is this is the one. This is. I'm the trying team to find to excuses, one. and as I as I, as I put them forward, I realise they absolutely are totally meaningless. <laughs> which is a very, very unpleasant situation to be in. Actually, I agree with you. He's not. He's not doing this thing. I don't think he should be the scapegoat. I think it's inevitable because we're we're doing a podcast that's got a, a a big part of its audience that's English. That there's going to be a lot of talk about Harry Kane. Inevitably, the Guardian report. You get a lot of people talking about Harry Kane. I don't really think that the the reason Bayern Munich didn't get a result in this game is Harry Kane. I think that would be really unfair to to tell that story. I, I don't think anyone's saying that. Yeah, but that's I'm, I'm, I'm just making sure we don't have listeners hear that, even though we might not feel like. Oh, they'll hear that. what they want to hear. <laughs> oh. It's all Harry Kane's fault. Bayern Munich didn't didn't beat Lazio. So like that's that's not the case. But he the the conversation has moved on to the fact that Harry Kane it has been noted that he does occasionally fail to deliver in big games, and that is an undeniable fact. It reminds me of a conversation I once had um, with. with- uh, an Italian friend, actually, and we were talking about Marco Verratti, and who Marco Verratti, who's been, when he's been fit, one of the very best midfielders in the world for a very long time until he was not any longer. And we were thinking, this is funny how this guy is underestimated. And we compared him with Thiago Alcantara. Now, Thiago Alcantara, the reason why people think he's absolutely business is because he played one of the greatest games ever played in the Champions League final. That was for Bayern against PSG, remember that game. And because of that, his aura is completely different. But if you look at his career as a whole, he probably hasn't achieved as much as Marco Verratti in terms of the quality, constancy um, and consistency of his performances. So we tend to concentrate, like one game can be enough to make a great player. That's enough. And Kane, we're still waiting for this game. And he's, how old is he now? 31, is it? I thought he was 30, but you might be right. I, I, I was just thinking to myself, though, like, Am I am I imagining it, or was there not also sometimes a discourse with Robert Lewandowski that he wasn't supposed to show up in a big enough game? So actually, that's mm. that's the yeah, comparison. Flat track, the flat track bully. That's the comparison yeah. we're supposed to be drawing, right? Is Harry Kane because that's the role he's taken on is is the old Lewandowski role, um, and perhaps it's it's the story is that actually that's not what will fix your team. I just the thing that strikes me for this game that that I can't get over is the three 0 loss to Leverkusen was a really sort of low point for Tuchel and this Bayern team, right? It's it's not just that you lost your title rival, you got humiliated. And I think what's striking to me is that there was no reaction. I think that's what I expected in this game, is I expected to see some sort of tempo shift, some sort of attitude shift, some sort of anger in the team of we've got to take everything that we've, all this frustration out on Lazio. And and that was the thing that really surprised me at Bayern last night, is I didn't see any of that at all. I was going to ask you about the um, a the person singing my way in Italian before the Lazio game 
if that happens every week. And the eagle as well, which Andy Brassel was telling me was was not their eagle in the first place. They st- they bought it for millions or they stole it or it was like, you know, an amortised loan deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to plead some ignorance here. Um, Andy clearly knows more about the eagles. Um, Andy knows more about everything than everyone, right? That's uh, fair. Yeah. For starters, it's, a, it's an American eagle, isn't it? With a white head. That's a sea, American sea eagle, which oh. is bizarre. Anyway... Did they buy Sam from <laughs> <laughs> or Kayla the Christmas Crystal Palace? I just yeah. the Eagles Eagle. had so many highlights in its time there, um, but there was a game recently. I think it was against Fiorentina where it, it decided not to come back to where it was supposed to and went and perched on the edge of the away section and created one of the most ridiculous football visuals that I can remember, which is a bunch of Fiorentina fans doing like hand gestures of you can guess what at an eagle, and you think to yourself. It's an eagle, um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's a very much a, a Lazio thing. It was it was actually look Lazio fans. There is an element that is um, clearly has repeatedly done things that are deeply unpleasant, plastering and Frank stickers around the place, things like this. Uh, there there is an element of the ultras that rightly has a reputation for being um, quite um, unpleasant, but of course. That is an element. It's not every single person who sports Lazio. And, and it was an incredible atmosphere at the Olimpico. It was 60,000 fans, which they, they, unlike Roma, who've been packing out in the sort of Mourinho era and, and so far in the De Rossi era, they don't get those sellouts very often. And it was a, a, a tremendous atmosphere. And again, when I think about this tie, one of the reasons that I think I don't know they can get this across the line in the second leg is they won't have that behind them. It was a, a real sort of Roman night. And that stadium, despite the running track, it is something else when it's full. Often think this with Italian stadiums. I know I sort of will be reputed on this podcast and others as being the, the home for Italian teams and, and saying this stuff. But I I still remember being at the Olympico. This was for a Roma game, but Roma playing Liverpool in the Champions League and having Andy Hunter next to me. And Andy Hunter covers Liverpool at the time and, and covers uh, games at Anfield. And him saying to me, God, this is loud in Anfield. It, it is like that there sometimes. And I think that was definitely one of those nights last night. Uh, you mentioned Mourinho, obviously sat by Roma. Rumours of him... That stepping into the breach if Tuchel gets fired, I mean, that would be like, you just sort of think some people running football clubs are not watching any football from the last, I don't know how long, but you could just see Jose going in there, winning the Champions League. Can you imagine? All I'll say is if they think that Jose Mourinho is going to help them get past Lazio, they might want to check out his derby <laughs> results in uh, in three years at Roma because they weren't good. Uh, the PSG beat Real Sociedad 2-0. Um, it's an odd game, Philippe's. Real Sociedad were by far the better side until yeah. PSG scored. And then that just sort of changed, that changed everything. That changed the confidence of PSG and of Sociedad. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, 58th minute when Kylian Mbappe um, scores his shinner. Um, and, and after, you know, really weird series of events, because had not uh, Traore gone off the pitch, because he had, mm. you know, received a knock on his knee, he would have been on the pitch, obviously, on that corner kick. And it, um, it, he would have been actually marking um, Kylian Mbappe uh, instead of uh, of Kubo, who was there and basically forgot forgot Mbappe. And Mbappe did what he usually does, which means he was totally non-existent, transparent, ghost-like. Uh, every decision he took had been wrong for an hour, and then suddenly he does he does that. And then suddenly Paris Saint-Germain wakes up and think, oh, okay, that's a game to be won. And and I think it's more of a case actually of, of Real Sociedad thinking, 
goodness sake, we're playing so well and this happens. Mm. And so they just, yeah. they had spent so much energy, mental energy and physical energy in the first half where they totally played PSG off the park, but they can't score at the moment, Max, Real Sociedad. I mean, they were by far the better team. Afterwards, yes, when, you, when you've got um, players like um, Mbappe and Barcola and Dembele running at you when you're chasing the game and you don't quite have the legs that you had 20 minutes beforehand, you're going to be in serious trouble. But it was not at all the kind of performances that would make you think that um, PSG can, can lift the trophy at the end of the season, which is just as, as bad and as good as usual. I mean, there's absolutely nothing new. I mean, they, they, looked, they looked disjointed. They, they were losing every 50-50. Yeah. They, they didn't look that they had any response. I mean, I mean Real Sociedad were wonderful in midfield in particular. Some of the combination were, were glorious, but didn't have the cutting edge and they paid for it. But, you know, as PSG, we could recall this, change a couple of names and then play it every week. And it would be, uh, it would be just as uh, relevant as uh, uh, in, that, in that case than it was uh, in this one. Yeah, I wonder if it's a, a stupid question, Barry, or not. But if you have Mbappe especially, but also, you know, uh, Dembele as well and, and Barcola as well, that, you, that you, if you looked at that game, Sociedad looked so accomplished in midfield and so tight and every touch was perfect and PSG just weren't. They just weren't good at keeping it. But in Liga, you probably don't need to be because you can just give it Killian quite a lot of the time. Well, that's what they were trying to do last night, give it Killian. And as Philippe said, he kept making poor decisions. He, he had a kind of one-on-one early-ish in the game and hit straight at the keeper. Then he was sort of shuffling around the fringes of the box, not quite picking out passes. And I think the reason their midfield was so dysfunctional in the first half was because they were being man-marked by Real Sociedad and weren't getting any time on the ball. So the three Sociedad midfielders were man-marking Zaire Emery, Ruiz and Vettina. Yeah, Sociedad just pressed ferociously from the, the get-go and you can't sustain that for 90 minutes. You have to You have to get a couple of goals while you're doing it before the legs go and that's their fourth game without scoring they're missing their their talismanic captain and top goal scorer Michael Orzabal from he's out injured he might be back he should be back for the second leg I think but I wouldn't we all know what PSG are like I wouldn't say this tie is beyond Real Sociedad but the one thing I did notice watching PSG and then Bayern is Manchester City are playing a completely different sport to them Mm. I wouldn't give either of them a hope of winning the, the Champions League <laughs> yeah. on, on what little evidence I've seen. Yeah, and actually you would give it Arsenal a better hope. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too Premier League biased, but at this stage, a side that could beat City over two legs, yes. you would probably say is, of all the teams that are still in, would, would be Arsenal, I suppose. You know, and Real Madrid didn't look amazing last night. but Don't don't treat Lazio like they're the only representative from Italy, by the way, because Inter are in a different category, a very different category to the other teams in Italy. Well, you might as well tell us a little bit more. I mean, they are flying at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know, because obviously like, they, they didn't play last night, but uh, it, it's just when people are talking about teams that can win this tournament, no, Lazio can't win the Champions League, not unless something very odd happens there's there's no chance and I think the same goes for Napoli who have had a very odd season um obviously with Rudy Garcia and um and now uh, Walter Mansari as manager Inter uh, the league table does not even tell you now how far apart they are from the rest of Italy in terms of their quality they already played Manchester City in the final last year and I thought gave them a, a really good run over 90 minutes so um I think 
when you talk about teams that can win this tournament, are they favourites? No. Should they be favourites out of City? No. But could they beat any team in this tournament? I do believe that goes for Inter, yes. And just a couple, just a couple of things, because before we move on to something different about PSG's game uh, last night, um, two things. One of them is like, it's one of those moments that nobody has mentioned, nobody will mention, nobody will remember. Uh, in the 27th minute, Usman Dembele makes a horrible foul on the Real Sociedad left back. And I mean, like an Upamecano kind of foul, starts fast, mistimed, could get a yellow card. Immediately afterwards, he takes the ball and he whacks it 50 yards away. He should have been sent off, but he was not. On such things, football games sometimes uh, depend. And the second thing, when Bappe scored his goal, the tactical analysis by Robbie Savage was almost word per word the same as Jorge Valdano's. And I don't think I'm going to say that very often <laughs> because he immediately said, look, he should have been covered by that player. The player was off the pitch. That's why they scored the goal. So, Robbie, well done. Uh, you were in agreement with one of, of, of the greatest voices on football that there is on the planet today. Did uh, Jorge Valdano, like Robbie Savage, almost dislocate his shoulder from clapping himself on the back <laughs> by making this astute <laughs> observation, just out of curiosity. I'm sorry, I was not party to that event. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he it was well spotted by Robbie, but uh, yeah, he could have done without going on about how great he was for noticing uh, for five minutes after. It's like, that's your job, Robbie. I, I don't know if... if um... If we're about to move on from these games, I just thought one thing that struck me with these games last night that's sort of interesting when you look at them together. When they got rid of the away goals in the Champions League, everyone made out like it was going to kill um, approaches. I actually feel like what you saw was oddly two matches that almost were completely unaffected by that decision because Lazio going for a 1-0 win at home is exactly how you would behave if you were trying to not concede a goal at home and then get to the away leg and... In fact, in many ways, they're harmed in this situation by the fact there is no longer that away goals rule. Sociedad played exactly like a team that was going for an away goal would play. They, they went and pressed high and went for it right from the start. So I just thought that sort of talk that came when there was that decision about, oh, it's going to stop teams from going for it. I, I don't know if it's held up. Sometimes when you do something bad is the reason you do something good. Barcola's goal the, oh, the overtouch. is because yeah. he, miss, he mistimes the ball twice but it's because of that that he scores the goal because neither the defender nor the keeper think that he possibly can be quick enough swift enough to get the ball again because of that they go out of the position they should be in and he scores how do you coach that huh? if only yeah if only to be that yeah. quick uh, yeah. anyway that'll do for part one we'll look at the premier league games this weekend in part two Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so, Premier League games this weekend. Um, uh, best game on paper, Man City-Chelsea. Barry, did Chelsea have any hope at all? I mean, it'd be quite Chelsea to go and get a result here. The 4-4 earlier this season was one of the best games we've had so far this season. They have a chance, I suppose. They Not if they play like they did against Crystal Palace, but they certainly do if they play like they did against Villa. And... Who, which Chelsea will turn? We have a fair idea which Man City will turn up, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to which Chelsea will turn up. Uh, but I, I wouldn't. I would be reasonably confident Manchester City will beat them quite comfortably. But who knows? 
Chelsea have shown us what they can do when everything clicks into place. Yeah, and I suppose we're, we're looking from a neutral perspective at games that Man City might drop points in, and this is one of those games, isn't it? Um, elsewhere, Luton play Manchester United. Manchester United, Philippe, have turned a corner. This feels like the ideal place to reverse back around it, doesn't it? Kenilworth Road. Uh, you, you can turn a corner and suddenly you run into a wall. <laughs> that is true. Maybe I should leave it at that because that is true. Because <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Manchester United live in a place which is just like a, a maze of corners, and it's it looks and feels that way sometimes. I think Luton can do something. <laughs> Honestly, I'm sorry. And no, no. I mean, look, Luton have pushed bit. Luton have pushed better sides this season at Kenilworth Road. You just get a sense. Well, as I recall, Luton probably should have got something at Old Trafford, and. They're at home now, obviously. Played terribly last week when they got gobbed by Sheffield United. But um, if you could chalk that down as a one-off bad performance, I'd, I'd give them every chance to get something. Wasn't that wasn't that only Luton's second defeat in 10 mm, games across all so. competitions? I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the one thing you would say is that now Ten Hag has got almost like a full contingent of players to draw from, and that's going to make a difference. Well, maybe it will. Uh, or maybe it's going to be revelatory of, you know, how exactly he can get that team to perform. Um, so we don't know. I mean, it's not on one game because they won very, very late in the day that game that we're suddenly going to change our, our opinion of this very inconsistent team. Yeah. Um, Arsenal go to Burnley. I mean, Nicky there, you know, you know, they've had a great couple of weeks, haven't they? You know, to beat Liverpool and then to annihilate West Ham. Where's your sort of hope, hope on currently? <laughs> Well, because I'm, of course, a fan, what I'm expecting now is is them to crash immediately from this high into something completely needless and <laughs> self-inflicted harm and 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 not be Burnley. It's it no, it's 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 tricky, Max. I think um, you watch the the last couple of games. It was so good against Liverpool, really so good. Obviously, West Ham was part how good are Arsenal and part how impressive an implosion is this by West Ham, but. Leagues are won by that sheer relentless consistency. And at the moment, there's that feeling of inevitability that Manchester City will be the team that are most consistent in the end. Mm. But they may not be. We don't know. Um, uh, those inevitable feelings are just past experience and yeah, everything changes yeah. in the end, right? All those cycles break at some point. But is this City one ready to break? I'm not convinced. Um, Everton Palace on Monday night. We've already established, Barry, how excited you <laughs> are about this fixture. Uh, I mean... We've written here enormous for Roy Hodgson. Um, he may not be there uh, by the time this game kicks off. At Aaron's reporting this morning, it's it's sounding like Max. You you may have to record a voice I note don't before think, you go I to think bed. Everyone um, will be okay without a voice note. You know, uh, Ed Aaron's writing this morning. Talks continuing between Palace and Oliver Glasner over terms of the deal to replace Roy Hodgson. The Austrian understood to want a salary of around four million a season. Um, seems a lot. I reckon I could get Palace to 13th for two million a season. Anyway, uh, uh, Hodgson is due to speak to the press at 1.30 p.m. So like, you will be listening to this after them. Uh, now it seems like a matter of time until he's sacked. I guess the question, Baz, is if you were Glasner, wouldn't you just wait until the end of the season? Like, like, what, what do you have to... There's no guarantees they will stay up. There's no guarantees if you tip up now that you will help them stay up. You might as well just wait and see well obviously i don't know what mr glasner's situation is um but i, I would say now is probably as good a time as any why not yeah. 
I mean, I said, if, if they were going to offer me, if, if they were going to offer me four million pounds a year, I would say I'll have it. That's okay. That's fine. I'll take you down. I don't care. I, I think I saw his name linked with the Bayern Munich job, though. That that's the only thing. And if there are better offers than Palace possibly going to arise, yeah, maybe you should wait. But the thing is, if you're an outwork manager in football. Doesn't take long for people to forget about you. You have to turn up on Monday Night Football, Oliver, and do a stint, and then everyone remembers you're there. Yeah, and goal, goals on Sunday isn't on anymore. So yeah, that's, that's true. That used to be the real uh, sort of Betty Ford clinic for out of work managers. I'm still here. Hello. <laughs> the thing is that is that uh, Glasnow is flavour of the week month year because of what he did with Eintracht Frankfurt, right? Now, if you compare what the kind of players he had with Frankfurt, the kind of game that he made them play. How could you possibly do that with the people at Crystal Palace at the moment? I'm, I'm don't quite understand. I have to say. Mm. I mean, I guess the question is, what can you do with Crystal Palace? What you can do with Crystal Palace is hope that Eze and Alicia fit, and if they are, then you're fine. And if not, you aren't. Like that's sort of what any manager coming in. Would do, wouldn't they? Um, uh, Brentford, Liverpool. Brentford have announced the signing of uh, Igor Thiago from Club Brugge on a five-year contract uh, for a transfer around thirty million. He scored sixteen in twenty-four uh, in the Belgian Pro League. How much? Sixteen in twenty-four. He scored. No, no, but how much did uh, they sign him? Thirty million. Thirty million. Pounds. Holy moly! All right, is he not very good, or is he? Or... No, it's not that. It's just like we, we, you know, you didn't even like go. That's a lot of money. Which which shows where we are right now. When I've just been given far- a four million pound a year. Oh, yeah, by sorry, I'd forgotten about that. I'm absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good point you make, isn't it? Uh, you know, I I remember being flabbergasted that Spurs had spent two million on Paul Gascoigne. Uh, it, it is a while ago. I mean, it does give you a clue as to what might happen to Ivan Tony. I guess uh, if they're spending thirty million on a striker that's turning up. Uh, in the summer. Um, Johnny says, what's worse, Max? Chris Wilder saying all that or actually getting charged with it? What's the charge? Will he go to jail, do you reckon? Sheffield United play Brighton at the weekend. Chris Wilder has been handed a Football Association charge for his bizarre rant about a sandwich-eating linesman. Um, it's just fun to say out loud. Uh, Wilder was incensed when one of the referee's assistants was consuming a sandwich when the Blades manager went to see him after the 3-2 defeat at Crystal Palace last month. I think it may be about other things he said, not specifically the fact the referee's assistant was eating a sandwich. But anyway, I don't know if that is part of the charge. I don't know there is, you know, rule 7.8. You must not criticise officials for consuming food while you are yelling at them in their room. Spurs play Wolves. Uh, Hyung Min's son, um, you may have seen, had a little bandage over his fingers uh, during the game against uh, Brighton at the weekend. He dislocated his finger over a game of table tennis at the Asian Cup. Uh, it happened when some young players rushed their dinner before the semi-final against Jordan to go and play table tennis, and Sun and some of the other older players took issue with it. Um, uh, the players exchanged a few words. Sun hurt his finger in the process, a South Korean Football Federation official said on Wednesday. So so did he... Does this mean he got... He kind of did a Wilder-esque got angry with people for either bolting their food or not eating food. It appears so. In his As someone else wrote, and I can't remember where, 
It's not exactly the dentist chair, is it? Uh, no. <laughs> you know. Eat your dinner. We can play table tennis later, said Hingman's son. Anyway, he's okay. Fulham Villa, Newcastle, Bournemouth, Forest West Ham feels quite big, doesn't it? Just going back to, the, I mean, the Newcastle thing, Dan Ashworth looks like he's leaving as their head of recruitment and going to Man U, which I'd say will make Newcastle fans unhappy. You talked about Spurs Wolves there. Matthias Cunha has suffered what has been described as a significant hamstring injury, which means he could be sidelined indefinitely and he will be a massive loss for Wolves. Great shame. He's been absolutely brilliant this season, so that is a shame for everybody, isn't it? Um, Fulham Villa. Uh, Villa have lost their third player of the season to an ACL after losing Tyrone Mings and Emmy Bundy in the first week of the season. Bubakar Kamara is now gone and I think that could herald Villa going off a cliff because he has been fantastic for them and they've loaned out Leandro Dundonker uh, so he would be kind of a like for like replacement so it'll be does this mean John McGinn moves back uh, anyway whatever they do uh, they might put Yuri Tielemans in and, and move but I, I think this could the last we'll see of Villa as, as top four challengers. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good point. And Philippe, you wanted to talk about a slightly different tack, moving on from the Premier League, about Russian representation within UEFA yeah. that has perhaps gone un- unnoticed. Yeah, it's. I, th- I think if you ask most people, I mean, what is the status of Russia and their ally Belarus in, in football at the moment, people would say, oh, they're suspended from football. Well, even though Russia has actually paid Serbia just um, an awful lot of money to organize a friendly. But people would say, no, 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 they're out of the picture. Well, not at all. Um, there was the UEFA Congress in, in Paris last week, or yes, last week, and they were the representatives were, were present. The um, chief of the Russian Football Union was present, was also one of the chiefs of Gazprom, to show you how distant he is from the uh, powers that be in, in Russia. And the extraordinary thing, I, I made my counts of the number of Russians who were actually sitting on committees at UEFA. And in fact, there are 14 of them at the moment sitting on committees. And the one that really struck me uh, was that one of the main people on the uh, compliance and governance committees, that's an important one, is uh, Polina Yumasheva. Now, she is the ex-wife of a sanctioned oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, and she's the daughter of Valentin Yumashev, who until a year ago was a private advisor to President Putin. So you're thinking, what is going on here? I mean, this is basically surreal, what's going on. On one hand, the clubs and the national team cannot compete in UEFA and FIFA competitions. On the others, guys, you're very welcome to sit at the top table. You're very welcome to play a role in the way the game is, is played. The, the hypocrisy on this is absolutely blatant. I mean, basically, hypocrisy is the way things are going. I'm not going to open another debate, which we've already had and we will have again in the future. But in the future, but double standards and hypocrisy are basically what UEFA and FIFA are for at the moment, I'm afraid. Mm. So what they could say, what are you doing here? Or they, like, would they, would they not be with, they would be within their powers to say you can't come. I, I, I think that there is a case to be made for if you suspend uh, a federation, you should suspend its officials and you, they shouldn't certainly take part in the decision process. It's absolutely, um, Mr. Dukov of Russian Football Union is still a, a deputy chairman of the competitions committee and the uh, associations committee. I mean, they're very important positions. And Yumasheva 
I mean, I can't believe it that she still is there. And also what I can't believe is that there is no debate about it, that people think, well, that's normal. That's normal. No, that's not normal. Well, we're on what you wait for. It is worth seeking out Nick Ames' interview with Alexander Sheffrin, which he did before... Sheffrin said he wasn't going to stand uh, again to be the, the head of UEFA. Mm. So it was a really good interview. Uh, that's really interesting. And, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and that'll do for part two. Um, Ewan Murray joins us uh, for uh, Fitbar Corner in part three. I'm Grace Den. And friends, I am back with some more helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. I'm welcoming a host of fabulous guests. From David Bedil to Katie Price, and from Amol Rajan to Kathy Burke, and they'll be revealing the tastes they turn to when in need of solace and cheer. Comfort Eating returns on the 13th of February with new episodes released every Tuesday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Is that jazz I hear? We join you and Murray in the jazz bar for some Fit Bar Corner. Hey, you and how are you? Hola. Good to be back. Yeah, we have a title race, don't we? Rangers beat Ross County 3-1 last night. So they are level on points with Celtic after 25 games. Level on goal difference. Celtic have scored more goals. Um, were you expecting this? In my mind, I was just expecting Celtic to, to walk away with it this season. I don't know if that was just me being naive or, or ignorant. No, I mean, as recently as October, I was expecting Celtic to run away with it but to be fair to Philippe Clement he has um, and I'm going to put this in first because I always say it you have to be mindful of the general level of opposition in Scotland however um, he has done a very impressive job in making sure Rangers beat all these teams where it didn't look in the early part of the season as if they, they could or would and um, despite Brendan Rodgers protestations about the narrative as he puts it around Celtic Celtic looked a bit edgy, a bit nervous, a bit unconvincing. And Rangers believe, now with good reason, I think, that they can they can win this league. Mm. Uh, yeah, Philippe Clement's record since he joined, played 24-120, drawn three, lost one. And what's he like and, and what kind of football is he playing? Efficient football. I, I, I don't think Rangers, although, to be fair, they've progressed to the knockout stage of the Europa League. They won their group, so they're not a bad team, but I, I'm still... I wouldn't overpraise how good they are, but they, they, yeah, I think they're efficient. Apart from last night against Ross County, where they had something like forty-two shots at goal and only scored three times, but generally they they win games even when they don't play well. They can dig out results, and that's a sign, obviously, of a team that will do well and a team that will win the title. I, I like Clement. I think he's a serious guy. He doesn't suffer fools. Um, he seemed pretty straight to me. There's no nonsense around him and the players like him because his his messaging is is very simple and he's the kind of guy that, that players will respond to. And, and you can see it in that, that run of results. And you have to remember when Michael Beale left, Rangers did seem in a bit of a mess, a squad of players that people were not really having at all. Um, it didn't look as if they could they could win anything, never mind win the league. Well, they've, they've won the League Cup already. And, and as you say, here we are in mid-February and there's a, there's a title race. And, and that's... You know, Rangers have, uh, the last few years, Rangers quite often have hung in until kind of Christmas time, New Year. But to be in it, and I mean, obviously, the seasons apart from the one in which they won it recently, but um, to be in it at this stage shows that there's been a change and something is different. And, and Celtic are going to have to battle hard if they're going to retain the title. And is he improving players? Are there guys that under under Bale were not really 
at the races and now are. That was my long-winded way of saying that, yes. I mean, there was guys Rangers signed in the summer who I think people were really not sure of or, or didn't think could hack it at all, and that and that has changed. I, and, and to be fair, he, he changes the team around quite a lot. The collective, I think, has become stronger. It's not about one individual. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think so far he's done, a, he's done a very good job. As ever, it's such a short sample size, but what he has done is he had bought himself favour and time with the Rangers' support, which is valuable. Um, because of how how he has turned things around, and I think also because of that that demeanour, he 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 carries himself well. He carries himself like the manager of a big club, and I think that that strikes a chord with with the Rangers support. It's it's a very interesting trajectory that he has because, to be honest, I think he he was the very best manager in Belgian football for quite a while. Uh, he won the title with Genk. Uh, he won the title with Club Brugge twice. And then he had this um, unpleasant experience with Monaco. But uh, actually, even with Monaco, he wasn't that bad at all. If you look at his record, it just happens that the team um, had a bad end to the uh, to the season of his only season there. And they decided to dispose of him. But you would think that it's the perfect springboard Rangers for him um, to go on to uh, a big club. Because what he did in Belgium was absolutely remarkable. And um, and I, I have to say, I was a little bit surprised when, when I saw that Rangers had got him because I thought, my goodness, you've got your hands on a very good manager here and he's proving it again. It's a, it's a simple point, Philip, but maybe that, just that basic experience of, of winning. That's important when you're at Rangers. You, you, you have to win. So he, here, they have, here, they've got, here they've got a manager who has that experience. Again, a simple point, but I think it's probably quite important and quite valuable to what Rangers are trying to do because they haven't won nearly enough in the last you know decade or more. Yeah, and on the flip side, I guess the risk about Brendan Rodgers coming back was that there would be a, a set of Celtic fans, I don't know how big, probably sizable, who would be quite willing or ready to turn if it didn't all go swimmingly given how it ended last time. Yeah, I mean, that, that suddenly is fascinating to me. And in fairness to those supporters, it doesn't seem to be Brendan Rodgers that they're currently upset with it seems to be the board of the club I mean they beat Hibs um, again pretty unconvincingly last midweek and they're, and they're, sang, they're, they're chanting sack the board at the, at the end of the game um, Brendan Rodgers himself spoke about a lack of bravery that was the word he used in the, in the transfer market in January um, there, there's just a feeling of unease around Celtic that, that despite the way and, and Rodgers is now using this siege mentality thing where he wants to say you know, everyone's out to get us. We are the team that's been dominant. People want to stop us. It's an old-fashioned tactic, and that's fine. But there's enough evidence when you watch Celtic, you're around Celtic, and actually you see and hear Rodgers' demeanour to say things are not quite right there. And I think if he can get them to the title this year, that would be a big, big deal for him. And if he doesn't, people will ask, just what you said, well, why did you go back? What did you expect? What, what did you think you were going to do differently? That, that dynamic around Rodgers and Celtic is... Is very very interesting, and uh, again, despite what they say, you just have to watch. You watch the games; you can tell with the atmosphere. Rangers have a supporter base who believe they can win the league, and Celtic have a supporter base who are suddenly a bit panicked about the fact they might not. I just wanted to ask about Ciro Dessas because he's had this sort of slightly interesting career the last few years. He was, um, I think, the top scorer in the Europa Conference League in the first ever Europa Conference League. So he went with final to the final, and he wound up at Cremonese in Italy for a year, and and that was a sort of odd little interim chapter it feels like and now he's it looks like he's back scoring a lot of goals um, for Rangers he is but I still think not enough he misses a serious amount of chances Nicky I don't know I don't I don't know if this is a theme throughout his career but he he needs he needs 10 or 11 chances to convert two and, and I 
I fear he won't have a long-term future at Rangers while that is going to be the way he, he plays. Yes, his numbers have improved and his play has improved, but he still misses he misses simple chances and far too many of them. Again, I don't know if that's a theme. Definitely, definitely, Cremonese, his, his goal scoring was, was criticised. It's hard to sort of pull apart because very different team, right? You're talking about a team struggling at the wrong end of the table against one that's at the top end of the table. But that Feyenoord run, I remember thinking it was fascinating then because I, I would agree. He scored 10 goals in that cup run, but you still saw him miss. You saw him miss some that you couldn't believe. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Ewan, Neil Warnock at Aberdeen. How, how delighted are you that he has arrived on your patch? Well, that was an interesting segue. I was, I was going to say, because this links, I mean, the, the best two strikers in Scotland this season don't play for Celtic or Rangers. The, the best two strikers... Um, by a distance, I, I would argue, are Lauren Shankland at Hearts and Boja Mayovsky at, at Aberdeen. They're the best two centre-forwards in the league this season. And, and that tells a story in itself. Sorry, Neil Warnock. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm getting too old and too cynical, but I... I, I that should suit Neil, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like this little league should be grateful for his presence and, and laugh at his every quip, whether it's funny or not, and, and lap him up. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, the wider point is I think Aberdeen have shown they're kind of all over the place in terms of football strategy that they have to hire him in the first place. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't buy into the Warnock hype, really. I mean, they were 3 0 down to Motherwell last night after 25 minutes at home. Now, now they come back and they get a draw and fair enough but you know Aberdeen are ninth in the league they really shouldn't be in that position certainly not for the money they're spending they shouldn't have to go to Neil Warnock for a short term fix and his knowledge of or interest in the intricacies of Scottish football I'm not too sure about but there maybe maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong Barry what do you think should I be celebrating Neil Warnock I like Neil Warnock but I can definitely see where you're coming from and it the impression is being conveyed, as you said, that they should be delighted that he's deigned to grace them with his presence. But I do like him. I, I, I'm a fan. Yeah, I guess the point is, you and you know, that, that it, it's a thing that makes Scottish football newsworthy. And I suppose from like from south of the border, and that could be seen as a kind of really is that like like care about this properly or don't care about it. I guess that's. That's the idea, right? And and I guess there is a wider question about the state of Scottish football beyond Celtic and Rangers, and that has has always been the case. Yeah, I could speak all day about that. I, I, and you know, has, has English football not heard it all before from Neil Warnock? I mean, they must have done now. He's he's seventy five. He's he's managed he's managed forty eight clubs or whatever it is. I mean, he, I don't know. It, it just wears a bit thin. It, it wears it wears a bit it wears a bit thin with me. That's and, and I I think I, I I I mean this in praise of Aberdeen. They're, they're one of our our biggest clubs, and I think that we're supposed to say, oh, isn't it great? Neil Warnock's come along and we're going to get some attention for some... No, I, I, I'm not quite... Maybe that wasn't the answer you were hoping for or expecting, Max. No, 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 no. I wanted the honest answer. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Neil Warnock's not saying, I'm trying some new stuff at the Hen yeah. and Chickens. You know, like, a, like, like we, we know what we know what we're going to get. Uh, David said, hearts are good, aren't they, Ewan? How are they faring? High-flying hearts. So for, yeah, they're, they're doing very well. They're 12 points clear in third place. They're in the last eight of the Scottish Cup. They have the aforementioned Lauren Shankland, who scored 24 domestic goals this season. Um, yeah, for once, I can't complain about Hearts when I'm on here, so that's that's a good thing. 
Oh, how joyous. And is there anything else that we should, you know, as you know, the cliched things that we're looking at, Neil, <laughs> what, what are the things we should really be getting our teeth stuck into? No, that's probably it. No, sorry. I can't, I can't raise the bar with that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's all about Neil Warnock, isn't it? Um, uh, well, you might as well hang about there, because you know, we've not got much to go. Um, uh, just a couple of other bits. Um, uh, Rodri says, seems like Serge from Kasabian, Latisse and Zola had a word. Yeah. Nigel says, Shaman, justice for Philly Jean. Uh, Jaden Philogene has been given that goal for Hull, the Rabona that we were discussing um, yesterday. And uh, uh, so well done to him. Uh, Michael says, haven't had any pet mentions on the pod for a while. Was wondering how Nicky's dog is getting on. <laughs> Do you know, I literally just muted myself to stop him because he was beginning to bark at someone outside. And so I just muted myself so you wouldn't hear him, but he's doing just fine. Marvellous. Good to hear. Has Barry been dog sitting recently? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Um, Needy Norman was farmed out to some other neighbours. Oh, wow, were you jealous? No, I was, well, I was secretly pleased, but also slightly put out, as in, why wasn't he, why wasn't I asked? Yeah. But um, anyway, yeah, he's, well, his master listens to this podcast. Um, Actually, uh, you know, his Norman Needy Norman's master is a Sunderland fan, as am I. He's far more of a Sunderland fan than I am. Were you surprised when Michael Beale got that job? Was I? Oh, I was very surprised. Yes. You, mm. you, um, I mean, I, I find his career trajectory astonishing. And, and he he fails up like a Tory MP. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I kind of, I've accepted for a while that English clubs don't pay much attention to what happens in Scotland, but this is the ultimate. English clubs pay no attention to what happens in Scotland because you would not hire Michael Beale. And, and again, Sunderland are a big club with, you know, straight-talking people around it. So that, that was a head-scratcher. I, I thought he'd, he'd kind of hauled himself back from the precipice at Sunderland, but they lost again the other night, didn't they? So maybe he's back there again. Yeah, they lost against Huddersfield last night. Um, on the subject of uh, Barry uh, getting Lucas Fabianski and Alphonse Ariola muddled up, uh, he said yesterday that, you know, if you are at the elite level, of podcasting. It's not a mistake you should make. Uh, Rob got in touch amongst others to say, Barry is wrong. Nobody has ever confused Football Weekly with an elite level podcast. It's very kind of you, Rob. And uh, Rory says, last week, Max suggested the Aston Villa-Manchester United game was played at such a pace it felt like it was played on times two speed. It reminds me of listening to a pod a year ago where my player had somehow defaulted to times 1.5. And for 59 minutes, I was convinced that Max had come in straight from a night out. And Barry sounded unnervingly normal. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thank you for getting in touch, Rory. Appreciate it. And that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Baz. Thank you. Thanks, Ewan. Thank you. Thank you, Philippe. Merci, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders. This is The Guardian.